new series, Conversations with Jesus. Conversations, you know those things where at least two people, maybe even more, talk to one another, actually talk to one another, put these things away for a little while, right? And, and uh, I have a son who's never without his. They are always draped around like this. Are we okay, Phil, on the sound? Okay. They're always like this, and I have a daughter who is using them more and more and more lately. And conversations seem sort of novel sometimes. We exchange ideas and information on ourselves. They're the parts of movies and TV shows which tell us, do we actually care enough about these characters to worry about whether or not they're in trouble or if they're believable? If you think about it this way, YouTube is an entire social media platform based on the idea that content creators are having an actual conversation with you. At least that's the way successful channels work on YouTube. They're not, but that's the way that it goes. The, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld recently, in the last few years, has reinvented his career by creating a new Netflix TV show, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And the cars are a prop, a really expensive prop, but it, the show is about the conversations between these comedians, right? And they make each other laugh. They talk about comedy. And to perf be perfectly honest, what they show about themselves is often not that flattering. If you, I've watched most of the episodes. And in one episode, Jerry is talking with a guest about Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers, right? And in one of them says, Mr. Rogers makes you feel bad about yourself. Why do they say that? Because they're basically admitting, I'm not a nice person. And my conversations and the way that I think compared to Fred Rogers show that I'm not. Conversations matter. They tell us things and they force us to confront the truth, often truth we don't want to hear, and they set a trajectory for what happens next. And so over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at conversations that Jesus had. And as we do, I want us to look a little bit deeper than just what's contained in the words in the particular conversation that we're looking at. Look beyond the specific conversation. And what do I mean by that? It's a very good question, because we have to be careful about reading too much in. We have this bad habit of reading too much into conversations. But at the same time, we need to look for patterns about the way that Jesus has conversations, what kinds of things happen. And it's more than just the specifics. We're going to look at John 3 in a moment, and it goes beyond that. We need to look for something larger. And this past week, I was invited to be part of the preaching meeting, uh, talking about the start of this series. And, and Pastor Tim led the conversation, and he talked about what he was seeing and what he was learning as he reread some of these conversations with Jesus. And I changed his words a little bit, but very quickly, before we get into this passage today, I want us to look at three basic things that we need to be thinking about when we think about Jesus' conversations. And when we do these, when we kind of keep these in the back of our minds as we look at these individual conversations over the next couple of weeks, it's going to help us to, uh, to see what God is up to and how we need to adjust our lives accordingly. And I will say that in the bulletin, they numbered things kind of strangely. I'm not exactly sure what happened there, but, um, but uh, I think you can follow along. So Jesus' conversations first reveal his character. And just like Seinfeld's conversation about Mr. Rogers revealed something about him, when we look at, at Jesus' conversation, it teaches us more than a little bit about his character. You pick out any of Jesus' conversations, you'll see what I mean. John the Baptist. There's two big conversations Jesus has with John the Baptist. One is at his baptism, and one is sort of by proxy when, when John is in prison and he's doubting. And in the first case, John is, really? We're, you want me to baptize you? What is going on? 
And in the second case, John's asking, are you really the one? And what does Jesus do? He reassures John in both cases, shows him who he is and what he cares about. He shows him that he's trustworthy and he's willing to do for others things that by all rights he shouldn't have to do. The woman at the well. In Samaria, she's an outcast, a person that no self-respecting Jewish rabbi should be talking to. And he shows her both that he cares, that he knows who she is and what she's about and what she's done, and that he cares about her more than about his reputation. He actually cares about her and wants what's best for her. He gets past barriers and objections and gets to the heart of the matter. That conversation leads him to teach his disciples about caring as well. Or what about Thomas, the doubter? After the crucifixion, he missed Jesus' first appearance to the disciples. He doesn't believe. And when he's confronted with the reality of the risen Jesus, he's shattered. My Lord and my God. And Jesus rebukes him. And he corrects the unbelief, but he also accepts him back into the fold. That's what Jesus does. His conversations matter. In just those few instances, we see Jesus' character shining through. He's human, to be sure, but he's not exactly like us, is he? He's different, set apart. He cares more and endures more and is more than we are. Jesus is God in the flesh. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. And Jesus' conversations reflect that character and remind us, like we're told in Romans 8.29, that we're to be conformed to His image. So seeking His character in His conversations is vital for us. But second, Jesus' conversations also reflect our realities. Have you ever had a conversation or tried to have a conversation with someone who's just functioning on a totally different level than you? Like, maybe it's the physics professor talking about the laws of motion or quantum physics, and you're just like, I got nothing. Or maybe it's the mechanic who is talking you through all the things he has to do to determine why your AC isn't working in your car, right? And you don't have any idea. Or maybe the kid can't understand what you're talking about because they're a kid, and they haven't lived long enough or developed enough. The point of conversations is communication, right? And Jesus' conversations reflect our realities both individually and collectively. And he's really amazing at reaching across boundaries and barriers no matter who it is. It doesn't mean that his audiences always understand, but he does always put us in a position to understand. Take a look at any of Jesus' conversations and you'll see what I mean. He's never condescending. He never lords it over those he's talking to. He's always appropriate to the audience that he's talking to. In Galilee, the people are largely farmers. It's an agricultural area. And what does he do? He tells parables, stories, that deal with agricultural things. That's where they live. That's what they do. When he's speaking on the issue of neighbors and being a good neighbor, you know what he does? He brings up the Good Samaritan. Why does he do that? Because the Samaritans were the half-breeds that no Jews wanted to be a part of. And what he does is he says, hey, the neighbor, the people living right next door that don't look like you, that you don't want, he turns the connection point on its head and says, be better than you are. He shows a different way. When he speaks to kings and rulers, he does it in a way that shows his power. When speaking to the Pharisees, he often argues with them. You know why? Because that's what the Pharisees did. They did it with one another. They debated with one another on things. And over and over throughout the Gospels, when Jesus is in conversation, we see a man who takes us as we are and speaks to us in a way that we can understand and that we can engage with. He refuses to allow us to be comfortable in the choice that, to remain where we are. He says, I'm going to talk to you in a way that makes you confront who you are and what you're about so that you will change. 
But third, Jesus' conversations also reorient us to the Father. Why did Jesus come? We just celebrate communion together. Why did he suffer and teach us to live and live his life among us? So that we could be reconciled to God. And we're going to see more about that in a moment as we look specifically at John 3. But think about Jesus' conversations. They inevitably point to the Father, to God. And if we take Jesus' conversations simply as a means for spiritual self-help, we're missing the point. We need to remember who it is that these people are talking to. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. That's who. Jesus' conversations tell us that we can both talk directly to God and that we can talk about the mundane and the profound, the things that seem insignificant and the things that seem overwhelmingly big. He's got it. He he can handle the conversation and he invites us to have it with him. And at the same time, Jesus regularly helps us to see that even when we're focusing on ourselves, on our problems and our concerns, that we should be setting our sights higher. We should be setting our sights on things above. We need to remember that it is God who's at the center. If we want Christ's character, that's where we've got to start. That's a long intro before I even get to a passage. But we need to kind of set this up. And let's dive in, shall we? John chapter 3, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. And this is what we see. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can anyone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not understand our t- or accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness instead of the light, because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth will come into the light so that they may be seen plainly, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning in a place of worship and celebration. We celebrate communion and we, we look at this famous passage. And at the same time, our, our hearts are breaking the tragedies of two mass shootings in less than 24 hours. And we see the evil, the darkness in the world, and it is hard to understand sometimes. I thank you that shown us even in a little bit of speaking already that 
you can handle the darkness and the questions and the conversations that we have. And I pray that you would help us this morning to see a little bit more clearly who you are and what you are about. And I pray that you would, too, help us today and in the days to come as followers of you to show your light to a world that desperately needs it. I pray that you would help us to be the light for those that need it and not to contribute to chaos and darkness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we look at John chapter 3. We've got to look at the setup to this conversation. And there's at least two contexts that I want us to think about. And, and it's not just this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. It's, there, there's another thing that we've got to look at. Before we get there, we have to ask another question. And that is, John, why did you put this conversation in your gospel? And we look at any part of the life of Jesus, it's important to remember that when we read the Gospels, that these are not straight-up biographies like we're normally think, thinking about, right? The writers of the Gospels have agendas. And today we hear the word agenda, and we think, whoa, nope. We, we get nervous, right? Because we're taught that the cold, unbiased, scientific facts are the truth. Everything else is opinion. And the problem is that life doesn't work that way. And frankly, neither does science, but that's a whole different conversation. A string of facts is just that, a string of facts. It can't tell you why. It can't tell you the meaning behind something. The gospel writers put facts together in certain ways to help us to see things we wouldn't see otherwise. So, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is action-packed. Boom, this happened. And then, boom, this happened. Luke spends a lot of time showing the humanity of Jesus. He's writing predominantly to a Greek audience, and they cared about these human things, and they didn't have all the Jewish categories, and they didn't care. Matthew is perhaps the most Jewish, right? And so he goes out of his way to make things clear to the Jewish people. And John is interesting. His gospel is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call those the synoptics. John has different materials. It's the most distinct. It's got a different structure. And it's almost like he is actively trying not to be those other three gospels. For the record, I think he is, because I think it's written later, and he knows about those other three Gospels, and he's saying, no, I'm going to write something different that needs to be said. And as a book, John is interesting, because he uses ideas and concepts that both connect to Jews and to Gentiles. And then he takes those ideas, and he shows how both the Jews and the Gentiles have got things wrong. He flips them on our head. And John's audience is primarily Jews, who are living in Greek and Roman cities. See, after the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, John leaves, and he's in Ephesus for at least a while, probably with Mary, Jesus' mother. And his concern is for both the Jewish people living in Ephesus and the Gentiles around him. And he addresses both. And Skip Ryan, in his commentary on John, says that John is both selective in the content that he has, truthful, and a passionate witness to Jesus because he's been there and seen that. And John makes all of this clear at the end of his gospel. In John 21, 24, and 25, he says, look, I'm a witness. I know that these things were true. And then he goes on to say, I don't have any way of including everything that Jesus said and did. There's too much. And in John 20, 31, he makes it clear why he wrote. He says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John's goal. So we have to look at John chapter 3 in light of that. And so think about this. Beginning of John, John 1, 1 to 18, we have the introduction to the word. John the Baptist sets the stage. In John 1, 19 to 28, John the Baptist is important. 
but he's not the Messiah. John 1, 29 to 34, Jesus is baptized. 135 to 42, the disciples move from John to Jesus. And then in 143 to 51, we get new disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, the first big miracle, the wedding at Cana, water into wine. In 2.13 to 25, Jesus cleanses the temple. And then in 3, 1 to 21, we get Nicodemus. It's all about, John is setting up, who is Jesus? What is his role? He's commissioning his followers, his first miracle, his holiness. And then at the end of chapter 2, right before this passage, John says that Jesus did many miracles, performed signs, and many believed, but he didn't trust himself to them. So this conversation is really important for John. It's the first big conversation we see in John. It's a place where Jesus himself lays out who he is and what he's about. So we need to take notice. So who is Nicodemus? Why should we care? At this point, up to this point in the gospel, Jesus has interacted with people on the fringe. John the Baptist is probably in a scene. These were kind of the crazy religious guys that lived out in the desert, literally. Okay? And then his disciples are like business people and blue-collar average Joe types. Right? They're, they're not leaders. And the wedding at Cana, come on, it's his mom that's pushing him to do this stuff, right? Because that's what moms do. And then he clears the temple. And this is a difference between John and the other Gospels. The other Gospels have the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry, just before the Passion Week. And so we have two options. A, John just moved it, right, to the beginning. And that's possible because ancient biographers were less concerned about chronology than teaching something about the person. And so our modern rules about how you do these things That's not what they were worried about. So that's really possible. The other possibility is Jesus cleared the temple twice. And it's very possible. But either way, that's less important. Cleansing the temple would have gained attention, lots of attention, from all corners. And in 3.1, we get Nicodemus. John is the only gospel that talks about him. Pharisee. And they... The Pharisees were guys that they rose up during the exile about 100 years, that happened about 100 years after Amos, that we spent all that time with, right? And we tend to think of the Pharisees as the religious hypocrites, right? We've got good reason. After all, that's the way Jesus talks about them. They had lots of rules. And they looked back at Israel's history and said, you know what, we're really bad at keeping the law. We keep messing it up, and we keep losing our kingdom and going into Israel exile, and if we could just get everybody to keep the law, everything would be good. And Jesus often argues with the Pharisees in the Gospels, and as I mentioned earlier, that's how the Pharisees worked things out. They argued with one another. They debated one another. So when we see antagonism, well, yeah, it's there, but it's also Jesus meeting these guys where they were at. And you take all of these things together and you see something that maybe we often miss. The Pharisees didn't particularly like where Jesus was headed and everything, but they saw him at least as an important enough person to interact with in the way that they normally did. And broadly speaking, he was in their theological camp. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 3, to follow the teaching of the Pharisees to obey what they say. Just don't do what they do. That's what Jesus said. And the Pharisees don't have much of anything to do with the temple, you see, because the temple was the area for the priests and the Sadducees. So if Jesus cleanses the temple, Nicodemus is probably happy. He's like, good for you, man. You're getting in on going after these guys who are corrupt. And and probably Nicodemus sees a kindred spirit. And he's also a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. 
This is important. There's 70 of these guys for the entire country. And they have civil and religious authority under the Romans. And Jesus calls him Israel's teacher in verse 10. He knows his stuff. He's the insider's insider, if you will. And he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And I hate to put it this way, but Nicodemus is us. He's us. The conservative, the evangelical church of the time. He has a good understanding, according to the formulas anyway, of who God is. He knows the scriptures and has from a young age. He doesn't associate with people he shouldn't associate with. He has all the right credentials and all the right friends, and he's exactly the kind of guy you bring home to mom, girls. He's successful and powerful and deeply religious, and yet in chapter 7 of John, we see this interesting thing about Nicodemus. Jesus is teaching at the festival of the tabernacles, and the people are divided. Is he the Messiah? Is he not? The Pharisees want him arrested, and the people know that the leaders want him dead. And the temple guards have been sent to arrest him, and they decide not to. And the Pharisees are mad. But interestingly, verse 50, we see Nicodemus again. Quote, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number. And in verse 51, Nicodemus says, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? It's a half-hearted defense, kind of weak, and after the fact but it's also entirely true. And some people think that Nicodemus came at night because he was afraid to be seen with Jesus. And others say he came at night because there was no crowd so he could have an actual long conversation. One rabbi to another. But before we're too hard on Nicodemus, we have to ask ourselves, how much are we willing to be identified with Jesus publicly? Do we want that publicity? And of course, it's not just Jesus, it's the company Jesus keeps, right? The riffraff. And in chapter 7, when Nicodemus does speak up, you know what the other Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, say? Are you from Galilee too? One of those flyover people. The country bumpkins who don't get culture and are uneducated and believe the wrong things. And let's face it, being known as a Christian, especially an evangelical, isn't generally a recipe for social advancement today. Though I would hasten to add that a large part of that is probably our own fault because we don't always live up to what we say we believe. Just kind of like Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees. Do what they say, not what they do. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, full of dead man's bones on the inside. So in all of this, Nicodemus is compelled by Jesus and comes to him. So what is he looking for? And that's the question. Peace? Absolution? A companion? Rabbi, we know you are from God, Nicodemus says. It's a startling admission. He calls Jesus rabbi. It's more than just teacher like we think of teacher. It's a lot more deeper. He's recognizing Jesus as a spiritual teacher and leader, and he's got the actual formal training. And as far as we know, Jesus doesn't have any, and he's calling him a teacher. And then he says, we know you come from God. Now, to be fair, it's early in Jesus' ministry, so it's possible that the Pharisees at this point haven't decided that Jesus is sort of the enemy and a threat. He's more like them than not. But he's, and he's clearly no friend to the Sadducees and, and the priests. Those are a couple points in his favor. But he says, no one can do the signs that you do, referencing the end of chapter 2. Maybe Nicodemus is looking for an ally. The popular preacher who the people will rally around and, and he can be brought onto the team, right? Populism isn't exactly new. What he says, or maybe Nicodemus is really intrigued by Jesus. And he says, you know, I've heard this guy. He's an amazing speaker. What he says makes a lot of sense. I don't entirely get it, but I want to know more. And both of these things are probably true. And I think like many of us, Nicodemus knows there's a spiritual hole in his life. Right? He knows that it's one in the life of his people. 
in his nation. He really does want it filled. And I think he has become aware of this up-and-coming rabbi and his hope. And he is hoping that maybe something different. Is it worth jumping on board with this guy? And of course, like all good Jews at his time, whatever political or religious affiliation they had, he wanted a return of the kingdom. And we're going to see in the substance of this conversation what's really important. And this is verses 3 to 15. Notice verse 3. Very truly I tell you. Jesus doesn't mess around. No chit-chat, no pleasantries, no mutual admiration society. No, well, thank you for the kind words. I know that you guys are trying to do, get, do your best to get the people to follow along, to obey God's laws. And Nicodemus doesn't respond exactly. That's what we're really about. Now, how can we work together? None of that. Boom, Jesus. Very truly, I tell you. I think Jesus understands exactly who Nicodemus is and what he's looking for. And he starts the conversation accordingly. He knows this is an insightful, if timid, guy. A guy who's a leader, but not a wave maker. A truth teller who naturally goes to the front of the class, but maybe in row two, right? Because he doesn't want to be the guy out front and taking the reins. He immediately gets to the heart of the matter. The central issue is the kingdom of God. Now we think, John 3, it's about me getting saved. How can I be saved? But Nicodemus wasn't thinking that way, and neither was Jesus. Because Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. The central issue was not Nicodemus' salvation. The central issue is God and his kingdom. And when we make my personal salvation the central issue... We run into error, not because salvation is unimportant. Of course it's important. We just celebrated communion. But it's not first, it's second. That's the difference. God comes first in his kingdom. And do we want to be a part of God's kingdom? Or do we want our own kingdoms and to try to pull God into it? Do we want a kingdom where people are like us and life is comfortable and uncontested? God's kingdom was not what Nicodemus was expecting or wanted. Jesus wasn't about overthrowing the Romans, or the Republicans, or the Democrats, or fill in the blank with anyone you don't like. Jesus makes it clear that his kingdom is different. From the beginning of his ministry to the end, from Nicodemus to the crucifixion, from the signs he performs to the conversations he has, whether the Religious insiders like Nicodemus or ones in Galilee or Pilate himself. Jesus says to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would not allow my arrest. Amos showed us that a prosperous kingdom can be evil. And that prosperity and security don't lead to God's kingdom. What is the point of God's kingdom? It's not political power. It is not safety and security. It is not my personal salvation. Not because any of those things are bad. Of course they're not bad. They're good things when properly ordered. The point is that God's design for the universe be fulfilled. The point is getting on board with His rule and His reign, not mine. And the point is God himself, the creator, sustainer, and as we are going to see, redeemer of all. The kingdom allows us to be with God. Not the petty gods of the Greeks or Romans, not the modern, over-promising, under-delivering gods of success and fame and power and wealth, but the real God. And I think Jesus is saying, so Nicodemus, and so Kevin, and anyone else who's paying attention... If you want to be part of my kingdom, God's kingdom, well, here's what you have to do. And he gives a command. You must be born again. Three times Jesus says, be born again, in verse 3 and 5 and 7. Verse 7, we see it in a command. 
In verse 3, Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom without being born again. In verse 5, he says, you can't enter the kingdom without being born again. And in verse 7, why are you surprised when I say you must be born again? Now, these are words that are culturally controversial today. And the way that Jesus records it is very interesting. He uses words that have multiple meanings and multiple shades of meaning. Born again could also be translated born from above. Remember, this is God's kingdom we're talking about. Born from above, born of God. In in verse 6, Jesus says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You want to be part of my kingdom? Guess what? Your way of doing things doesn't work. It won't get you there. In Jeremiah 31, 33, the prophet Jeremiah records this about the new covenant that we just talked about. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Here's the problem with being born again, with being born from above. It demands that we change that we become something other than what we are now. And Nicodemus knows that. The way that Jesus talks about it gives them an out, right? How can this be? No one can go into their mother's womb again. Now, maybe Nicodemus was actually confused, but I think he's deliberately missing the point. Why? Because the truth is, we don't like the implications of being born again. We live in a world that says, whatever you want, that's good. You're enough. Pursue your dreams, your desires, your needs. Don't let anyone tell you what to do or how. Don't let anyone tell you how, to, how you should identify yourself. Or that what you want in the moment is the least bit problematic or wrong. And Jesus says, hold it. You must be born again. You must give up who you are in the here and now and all the ways that you identify yourselves, and you must be born from above. You must leave who and what you are behind. Exchange your identity. You can't enter the kingdom without being born of water and spirit. And that doesn't mean, as we generally think about it, that being born physically and spiritually. Being born of water is not to be slightly crass about it, a way of talking about water breaking when a child is born. That's not what's going on here. Okay, Being born of water means to be purified in the Jewish context. If you look throughout the Old Testament, it goes with the Spirit, not in opposition to it. Water was an agent for purification, for being set apart for and to God. Think about John's baptism of water. That's why he did it the way he did it. It was ceremonial purification. And this is why Christians adopted baptism as well. It shows being set apart. That's what that means. But Jesus takes it even a step further when he says, and he talks about the Spirit in verse 8. In Greek, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. And so when Jesus does this, the way that John records this, there's, there's significance, and there's been a lot of ink spilt on exactly what Jesus is getting at here, and we don't have near enough time to go into all of it, not even close. But I want to highlight one thing in particular. If you were born of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the driving force in your life, it blows, it moves you where it will. I don't like it because it makes it sound like that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is some impersonal force like in Star Wars. And that's not what's going on here, but English has no neuter personal pronoun that we can use. Jesus makes it clear throughout his ministry that the Spirit is a person. Why do I bring this up? Because it's God who drives our identity when, when we are to be born again. It's God, this very personal God, who says that we have to exchange our identity for a new one. And we see this dramatically in the comparison in verse uh, 14 and following. How are people to be born again? Through the work of Jesus. 
through the power of Jesus, through who Jesus is. John has already let his readers know this truth in John 1. The Logos is the one. He is God. He is the giver of life. And now in this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, we see a comparison that makes it clear. Jesus refers to Numbers chapter 21. The children of Israel are in the wilderness during the Exodus. They're in trouble because they've been grumbling to God again, and God sends snakes. And Moses fashions this bronze serpent, puts it on a pole, and the rule is you get bit, you look at the snake, and you live. First century Jewish teaching, same time as Jesus, said very clearly that it wasn't the snake that saved, it was God who saved, and he used the snake to do it. That's Jewish teaching of the time. That's what Nicodemus would have believed. That's where Jesus would have been. And John crafts the telling in an interesting way because Jesus is clearly referring to himself when he says son of man. And that's a loaded term. There are all kinds of messianic implications with that term, and it's not to be taken lightly. And everything about this statement is loaded with meaning. Jesus will save. He's identifying himself with God and his work. He will be lifted up, exalted. He will be lifted up on a tree, which is cursed. God used the snake, the means of confronting the people, the means of their punishment, to be their savior. And God lifted the curse up and exalted it. And it's in this cursed state that Jesus comes into his glory. He saves us not in political might or in building armories, not by saying how good we are or allowing us to stay where we are. He says, look at me, trust me, believe in me. Nicodemus, you want to see the kingdom? You want to enter the kingdom? You need rebirth. You need a birth that only God can accomplish. You need true life, and that's me. I've been to heaven, and I've been to earth. Only I have the power, Jesus says, to unlock being born in the, of the Spirit. You've come to the right place. You may not understand it, but here it is. What are you going to do with me? Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, talks about salvation. I love this book. He says, sin and evil are self-centeredness and pride that lead to oppression against others. My, didn't we see that yesterday and in the middle of the night? But there are two forms of this. One form is being very bad and breaking all the rules. The other form is being very good and keeping all the rules and becoming self-righteous. There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. The first is by saying, I'm going to live my life the way that I want. The second is described by Flannery O'Connor, who wrote about one of her characters, Hazel Motes, that he knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. If you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, model, and helper, but you are avoiding him as Savior. You are trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. You are trying to save yourself by following Jesus. That, ironically, is a rejection of the gospel of Jesus. It is a Christianized form of religion. It is possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking them. Both religion, in which you build your identity on your moral achievements, an irreligion in which you build your identity on some other secular pursuit or relationship are ultimately spiritually identical courses to take. Both are sin. Self-salvation through good works may produce a great deal of moral behavior in your life, but inside you're filled with self-righteousness, cruelty, and bigotry, and you are miserable. You are always comparing yourself to other people, and you are never sure you are being good enough. You cannot, therefore, deal with your hideousness and self-absorption through the moral law by trying to be a good person through an act of the will. You will need a complete transformation of the very motives of your heart. The devil, if anything, prefers Pharisees, men and women who try to save themselves. They are more unhappy 
than either mature Christians or irreligious people, and they do a lot more spiritual damage. And I am afraid that that is where we tend to be. That's where I tend to be. So finally, let's look at the significance of this conversation. Verses 16 to 21. They're John's explanation of the conversation. Right? And they expand and explain because, like Jesus has said, we're blind on our own. Three things to help us understand the significance as we close. First, the love of God. For God so loved. This is God's heart. You want to know what God is about? For God so loved the world, His creation, all of it. Not you, Nicodemus, and the chosen people. Not those of you Christians who go to the right churches and believe the right things and look the right way and vote the right way and condemn the right things. The world. Full stop. God's love is bigger than you and me. It is bigger than what we believe. Remember, if anyone should have gotten belief right, Nicodemus. He knew the scriptures better than anyone in this room. I guarantee it. And he didn't get it. Right belief comes from above, from the Spirit. It is not about us. It is about God. God loved. How much? So much that he gave us Jesus. Not to condemn us, but to rescue us. John says, we're already condemned. Right? We've handled that part on our own. Jesus comes to give us the way out. Better the way into the kingdom of God. God's love is not without cost. But it's a cost that he willingly takes on himself. This is and always has been God's character. We see it throughout the Old Testament. God corrects and punishes, disciplines and prunes. But from the beginning, God takes on the cost of loving his creation. He did it in the Garden of Eden. He did it in the covenant of with Abraham in Genesis 15, where he takes on both sides of the covenant, absorbing all the costs. And if and when you hear that pe people say that the Old Testament God is mean and the New Testament God is nice, a God of love, it's simply not true. This is what the Bible teaches. Across the board, God is love. Yes, there are hard things. And there are things that we don't get and which seem to be out of whack to us. But the idea that there is a different God in the Old Testament and the New Testament is silly. Jesus identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament. John identifies Jesus as the God of the Old Testament, the very means of creation in 1.3. And Jesus says, if you really want to understand the love of God, you have to be born from above born of the Spirit, born again, then you can be with Him. Then you can see the kingdom and be a part of that kingdom. And that's love. Second, eternal life. What does entering that kingdom look like? What does it entail? In verse, both 3.15 and 3.16 we read eternal life. And that's not life where time just stops and keeps going and going and going and going and going forever. It's a different sort of life qualitatively different, life of the Spirit. This is life with God. This is the life of the age to come. It's an eschatological concept for the Jews. Life in God's kingdom is life as it's meant to be. And when we reduce eternal life to simply doesn't end or it will be okay after you physically die because you keep on going in a different way, or cosmic fire insurance, or however we think about it, we're missing out on just how deep God's love goes. We're missing out on the truth of eternal life because it's life with God, a life that actually matters. Not keeping up with the Joneses, or getting more toys, or having the best experiences. Not making others jealous through our curated artificial Facebook, Instagram lives but real, fulfilling, everlasting life, up to and over the top life. Finally, light and dark. Nicodemus was blind to the kingdom, to the truth that Jesus was telling him. And he was an insider. He was in the dark. Read John, John's gospel through, and you will see light and dark all over the place in it. John sees the world as a cosmic battle between light and dark. 
And light is coming into the world in the person of Jesus. Light and life are tied intimately in John's thinking, and so in the natural world. Almost all life needs light, right? And arguably, you don't have light, and you don't get, you don't get life, even for those microorganisms that will never see the sun. The problem is we love the dark. We want to keep it. We want to keep our identities and desires, and we have darkness in our hearts because we like it. We can't handle the light because it exposes our wickedness, and we are wicked. Paul in Romans 3 quotes two different psalms where he says that none do good, which, of course, reinforces just how much God loves us anyway that he gives us the opportunity to enter his kingdom. John says that those who love, who live in the truth risk the light. They are willing to walk in and have their selves be exposed. Because the truth is that God sees what we do in the dark anyway. God knows. He knows who we are and what we've done, and he gives us the chance, just like he gave the chance to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has this face-to-face, one-on-one conversation with Jesus, and it alters his life forever. In John chapter 7, we see a timid Nicodemus, but that isn't the end of the story. In 1938 to 42, Jesus is buried by Joseph of Arimathea. You know who's with him? Nicodemus. He brings myrrh and aloe for the burial rite, light, right? A lot of it. Like 70 pounds of it, a kingly amount, a lot, not cheap. Nicodemus, it seems, has finally understood the reality of who Jesus is, of the supreme sacrifice that Jesus makes. The conversation with Jesus that Nicodemus has changes everything because Jesus changes everything. He offers us the kingdom, life with the Father, born of the Spirit, purchased by the Son. That is the love of God. That is the God of love, the God of life, who calls us to himself today.